Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. I feel like people accuse me of being something in the in the vein of like a John Wayne character. And I think, oh, that I'm I'm much more goofy and effeminate and you know, I I feel like I have all the colors inside me despite this sheriff's rictus on my face. This is Death, Sex, and Money. I expect to be well paid. I'm in it for the money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. If you kill him, you'll have to kill me too. And need to talk about more. I love you more and more every day. That's very nice. I'm Anna Sale. Nick Offerman is famous for playing Ron Swanson, the macho, gruff, and exceedingly confident boss on Parks and Recreation. But Nick says when he moved to Los Angeles in his mid-20s, after some success in the Chicago theater scene, it wasn't confidence that motivated him. A friend of mine was about 20 years older than me, and he was someone I looked up to in the Chicago theater community, and he was— he was a bit lost. He drank too much. He was lonely. He couldn't keep a relationship going. And I had a fear that if I stuck around, I could sort of end up like him. So he left. But the transition to Los Angeles was not smooth. Nick was living in a friend's unfinished basement, drinking a lot, and taking any acting parts he could get. His first gig was on a Nickelodeon show called Kablam. Hey, little peanut putter. You look hungry. Here's a putter pretzel to tide you over. I played the antagonist, Colonel Kudzu. Okay, divot head, prepare for pulverization. It was a kid's show, part animation, part live action, with the vibe of a writer's room where everyone might have been high. There, there was this uh, really funny, crazy, uh, wonderful artist working on the art department named Pat Roberts. And uh, we met when I just walked in the first day. He was making a picket fence, and he was drawing knot holes on it with a marker, and uh, he was making them say 666. And I said, hey, man, <laughs> let's be friends. <laughs> he was a, a fellow uh, weird man. A fellow weird man. I mean, it's a funny way to put it. 100%, yeah. Yeah. Uh, for a couple of years, I, that's what I did. I, I tried to find my way through auditions and meetings, but didn't have a lot of luck. 
And finally, the way out was I said, I just have to do a play. And I did. I found a play to do, and that's where I met Megan Mullally, uh, who quickly, it became clear to me um, I wanted to marry, and that, <laughs> that pretty much saved my life. Megan Mullally, who Nick would eventually marry, was just wrapping up her second season playing Karen on Will and Grace. Well, honey, you know if you want people to like you, you have to buy them things. <laughs> Karen, that is so superficial. Honey, why do you like me? What do you think I should get him? <laughs> I knew about Will and Grace, but I hadn't seen it. There's a, there's a defense mechanism to Chicago theater where you look down... Uh, at New York and L.A. And so, of course, I, I sort of de- developed these prejudices before I met Megan. And uh, on the first day of rehearsal, we get, you know, there it was a big cast. There was 20-some of us. And we sit in a big circle and read through the play. Hmm. And so, you know, immediately it was like, okay, you, you look very cute, but, you know, you're not going to win me over because I know you're on TV. And then <laughs> You we, were a snob. Yeah, I was, I was a dumb snob. And um, then we started reading the play, and I said, oh, you're amazing. Like, you're a classic comedian. You are th- your top drawer. And so after that read-through, I approached her and said, hi, I'm Nick. That was super funny. I think this is going to be really fun. And unbeknownst to me, the rest of the cast was was very cowed because they did have televisions and they were starstruck by her because Will and Grace was a couple of years in. And so they were, you know, they were starstruck. And so I, I had no idea that I was the only one that actually approached her that day and made friends with her. Nick and Megan have been married for 15 years now. She's 11 years older than he is, and despite their different circumstances when they met, they did have some things in common. They both started out in Chicago theater, and they both were big fans of Tom Waits. And she said, oh, not only have I just recorded some Tom Waits songs with my band, I'm also old friends with Tom Waits and his wife, and like it, it just. Ever- I'm also old friends with him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's I mean, pretty good. It was pretty. Yeah, <laughs> that's a but, good line, and, and that's representative of just sort of how everything went, and and it was terrifying to me because I really uh, I, I didn't put a, you know it wasn't cognitive, but I held myself several classes beneath her. You know, I, hmm. she was wealthy. She drove a Range Rover. She she lived in a world that I had never uh, – into which I had never dipped a toe, you know? Yeah. Well, just like thinking about like you're living in a basement struggling and falling for this famous woman. Like how – was there part of you that was just like – did you have moments where you were self-sabotaging and talking yourself out of making the move? No, it – it had to do more with, uh, I mean, l- uh, looking back and analyzing it, uh, I can see a sort of bifurcated brain. Uh, I mean, it, <laughs> it was placing faith in the fact that even though I was aware of my shortcomings and my foibles and my lack of things like a cute haircut, um, that that someone amazing out there could think I was terrific. Uh, but it really, t- I mean, it I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of getting sweaty <laughs> remembering it. 
In what ways have you noticed the age difference in your marriage? When it became clear that we were becoming an item, people in both of our circles said, you know, are you okay with her being older? Are you okay with her being so successful? Uh, And... In both instances, the answer was, yeah, I mean, I'm totally okay. Like, this is it. (laughs) There wasn't really a lot to consider because it felt so right. Um, And Mm. just by nature of her being on the earth and in the business 11 years longer than I have been, is something I've benefited from incredibly. Uh, She's tackled so many obstacles uh, years before me often with me on her arm. Um, I suppose in, in, a, in a male way, in a traditional male way, it would be easy to bristle at that and say, you know, don't tell me what to do. I'm a man. I'll, you know, I'll figure it out for myself. But luckily, I think thanks to my upbringing, <laughs> I, have, I have the wherewithal to take directions uh, from whatever gas station is offering them. Nick grew up in a community where asking for help and pitching in was part of the deal. He's from Manuka, Illinois, where his grandparents and then uncles ran a family farm. His dad was a teacher and his mom was a nurse. Nick is the second of their four kids. We, uh, we had a large garden. You know, they did a lot of cooking and baking, and my mom made clothes for us. So I liken it to the little house on the prairie in the 70s. (laughs) I'm having trouble picturing that little house on the prairie, but in the 70s. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) with with the bigger, bigger mutton chops. Um, (laughs) But uh, looking back on it, I'm so grateful because uh, my family taught me so many lessons because of that. um, And I learned to have a good time without spending any money, which has served me really well. Like, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to put me in a circumstance that I'd be miserable. What were you like as a little boy? Um, delightful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and in, incorrigible. Um, I, was, I was a brat. I uh, spent my youth um, in a wonderful, wholesome family, um, testing the limits and so mm-hmm. I would I experimented with lying to people um, with stealing stuff you know I was I did some shoplifting and I I really uh, in hindsight you know it's it's really weird to analyze I mean but I really was just kind of like seeing what I could get away with in this world I guess when did you begin to have a sense that you were not gonna stay? in Manuka, Illinois? Probably in high school, like in early adolescence, uh, I was an altar boy in the Catholic Church, and that's when it began to occur to me that I was not one of this group of uh, conformists, as it were. Like, just vaguely, I had this idea that I, I I don't know, I needed to look elsewhere for my life's path. and I knew I had a penchant to perform. I wanted to entertain people. When I started looking at colleges, uh, I found out you could go to theater school, and I met some theater students uh, who told me that you you could get paid to be in plays in Chicago, and that was okay. a massive epiphany. I mean, I I had I just ran home and said, "Mom, Dad, I want to go to theater school. You, I can get paid. It's a job." 
The idea of studying theater was definitely a novelty for Nick's family. But his parents were supportive. And even though Nick says he wasn't a very talented actor at first, it did immediately give him a sense of purpose that he hadn't felt before. Instead of just seeing what I could get away with and still be an A student, I suddenly wanted to ace every class. I wanted to read every book cover to cover. Like, I, I found my jam. So w- when that shift happened, I almost immediately called my dad. And I said, Dad, I'm really sorry <laughs> for how I've been. Um I'd say I was, as a kid, I was also scoring in the low 90s. But that 7 to 8% was me out, like, uh, vandalizing the high school or, like, you know, seeing how much drinking I could get away with or whatever. And uh, I called my dad and said, I, I, I'm sorry about how I've bristled against your teaching and – I immediately recognize the value of what you and mom have given me, and thank you. Hmm. I'm so struck that you, as you found your footing as an 18-, 19-year-old kid, you were moved to apologize to your father. Uh, they're, they're, in, they're just incredible. I mean, they never flagged. They were, they blindly supported me, uh, bless their souls, <laughs> while I was, like, screwing around and, you know— figuring out uh, how the the Beatles' White Album would steer my life. <laughs> when was that period? From college, kind of through my Chicago years. I, I, I spent a lot of time sort of shedding my... Um, my, my uh, middle American skin, as it were. And... Um, and, I, and so I had to let the world know, but really it was for me, that I was, uh, that I was not uh, a buttoned-up conservative from a small town, even though <laughs> that's what I was. Coming up, Nick Offerman talks about sex in his marriage, something he and his wife have been really open about. The older we get, the less mystery there is around our, our sex lives, but uh, the more gratitude. <laughs> Speaking of sex, one thing a lot of you have been emailing us about lately is sexually transmitted infections. I just remember laying on the table with my legs up in the stirrups and hearing him say, herpes. Many of you told us that it's easy to feel alone after a diagnosis, but the stats say you're not. In California, where I live, rates of gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis hit an all-time high last year. And nationwide, STI diagnosis rates have been climbing for the last five years. But of course, behind those numbers are a lot of very private experiences. And those can often involve shame, surprise, and awkwardness. You should always disclose when everyone has all of their clothes on, because that definitely leads to some interesting and negative reactions. We want to hear more of these stories. Tell us about learning to live with an STI or disclosing one to new sexual partners. We also want to hear how STIs have affected other parts of your life, like how you talk to your kids about sex, 
the ways you feel about your body, or how a diagnosis has impacted your finances. Send an email or voice memo to us at deathsexmoney@wnyc.org. On the next episode, we're wrapping up our summer dating series, Hot Dates. Checking back in with the listeners we've been following all summer long and hearing some of the stories you sent us. After talking for about two hours, we leave the coffee shop and run into a classmate that's in the same PhD program as him. They exchange niceties, and then she gasps and says, oh my gosh, I forgot to ask about the baby. How are you doing? He gets visibly uncomfortable and says, oh yeah, the baby's great. She's at home with her mom. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalyst for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Nick Offerman and his wife Megan Mullally have a book coming out this fall about their marriage called The Greatest Love Story Ever Told. And a few years ago, they went on the road to talk about their sex life in a variety show called Summer of 69, No Apostrophe. And warning, the show and the clip I'm about to play get pretty explicit. The sun is on fire and my pussy is too. We've got a steamy fuck party for you. The moon is up and so is my dick. The bush in my pants is impossibly thick. Summer of 69. When did you learn how to talk openly about sex? Oh, gosh. Well, I feel like I've always been uh, mouthy if you put me in front of an audience. Um, And so I feel like I've been talking about sex uh, publicly uh, more successfully than I have privately. When I was a teenager, there was all of this mystery uh, around sex. And even my prospective partners, uh, who were often older than me as a teenager, I was I was one of those guys who the, the seniors took a shine to, uh, which was wonderful. You know, they, they were mm-hmm. – they uh, gently taught me the ways of lovemaking. But they would say things to me like – I would say, you know, I would ask questions about technique or geography, and uh, geography, and they would say, <laughs> shh, shh, "Shh, don't talk about it; you'll ruin it." And uh-huh. I, you know, and I would say, "Well, I'm, I'm ignorant here. Like, I'm trying to. I want you to help me do better. Uh, you, I mean, you will benefit <laughs> if you if we can talk about this and." So the, I don't know. There's there's this, there's this weird old fashioned sensibility that you're supposed to inherently know how to be good at lovemaking, and I, I certainly wasn't born with that knowledge. But there's there's absolutely no shame in saying like, hey, let's let's do some of these things to each other's bodies, and tell me, do you like this? Do you want me to do this, or what do you want me to do? You know, what do you like? And if I, I feel like. Um, 
I would have had a lot less clumsiness in my youth if, I, if somebody had told me that. It's sort of interesting that, like, to think about being a teenager who's in theater who's, like, used to being directed. Yeah. <laughs> that, like, thinking about you're really comfortable saying, I'm not really sure what I should be doing with my body right now. Help me. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, I mean, I, if I had known, I would have asked for notes after every performance. <laughs> <laughs> What was your love life like before you met Megan? Did you do a lot of dating? Uh, I wouldn't say no. I've never been much of a dater. I I saw music videos as a teenager. I, I remember specifically the videos of David Lee Roth that inst- <laughs> instructed me if I could make my way to California, I might find myself in a convertible with lots of ladies in bikinis. And 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 so I had this sort of idea that when when you grow up, you know, that's a goal. That's the, <laughs> that's that's what a, a love life looks like. And um, my uh, the the sort of solid relationship of my parents, uh, thankfully, um, always took root in me. And so, you know, I always tried to be decent in my relationships. I was much more of a boyfriend type than a. Uh, than a, a, a hound dog. But before I met Megan, um, there was always that uh, part of me that was like, I'm, I'm not mature enough yet to, uh, to take this f- for the long haul. Having come from a family that, that sounds like it was pretty traditional, um, when you first got together... How did you talk about the kind of family that you could have together and wanted together? I mean, I don't know. I I feel like from the get-go, we were sort of two lone wolves coming together. And even though we did talk about uh, having kids and, like, looking into a more traditional family, in in the early years of our relationship, it kind of became clear – that both of our lifestyles were going to be very itinerant. We were lucky enough to get a lot of work all over the place. And I don't know, we just sort of naturally settled into a life together without pursuing a, you know, sort of nuclear family household. And I'm I'm guessing here, but do you have a bunch of nieces and nephews? I have five nieces. Five nieces. Yeah. I just want to I just want to be able to picture what it's like coming to Uncle Nick and Aunt Megan's house. Well, I th- I think it must be there must be a touch of like Disney meets uh, MoMA to it, um, because you know because all the households of our family, you know, have have a similar aesthetic and vibe. They are they're rooted, you know, sort of you know. There's there's the charisma of a of a working class family. Um, raising kids, everybody has a healthy garden, you know, everybody cooks, they're wonderfully charming. And then when when they come to our house, which is on top of a hill in Los Angeles, there must be an element of fantasy to it, I I would guess. That's that's one uh, thing that I'm aware of, living in Los Angeles uh, away from my family and away from Megan's family, uh, is that we miss out on that everyday life where, you know, we, we know 
the, the everyday habits of our families, which are often infuriating. You know, it goes without saying that that's not always a wonderful thing, but it is a comfort that uh, that we do without. And you know, that's that's our choice, uh, and 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 we find a happy life outside of that. But even I'm 18 years in now to this day, I I wake up next to her, and really every every day I think. I just can't believe this happened to me. That's Nick Offerman. He's hosting a new crafting reality show on NBC called Making It, alongside his Parks and Recreation co-star Amy Poehler. He also was in a lovely movie that came out earlier this summer called Hearts Beat Loud in which he plays a widowed dad who forces his daughter to be in a band with him the summer before she goes to college. And that memoir with his wife Megan, The Greatest Love Story Ever Told, will be in bookstores this October. That Sex and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based in Emeryville, California, at the studios of the investigative podcast Reveal. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Stephanie Joyce, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale, and you can find the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Death Sex Money. So Nick and Megan don't have kids, but since the beginning of their relationship, they've always had dogs. Megan rescued a, a little poodle named Willa shortly before she rescued me, I like to say. And then we got her a little lieutenant named Elmo, and they're both uh, small poodles. Um, That's surprising to me. That's not the, the dogs I would picture in your household. No. Somehow. I, uh, I understand that. <laughs> and, but I have to say, uh, they're really dreamy. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. 